0: Last year, I read a book called The Art of Gathering, How We Meet and Why It Matters by Priya Parker. I was expecting some useful tips on how to phrase invites, fold napkins, come up with clever themes for dinner parties. But what I got was something far more radical. Every gathering, Priya wrote, is an opportunity to create a world that we wish existed. So I interviewed Priya for this podcast in January, back when we could conduct conversations face-to-face. Remember that? and I learned more. Priya's personal story is extraordinary. As a child, she shuttled back and forth between her father's family, who were evangelical Christian cattle ranchers, and her mother's, who were Indian-born atheist academics. It should come as no surprise that Priya would go on to study conflict resolution and apply her knowledge to helping people reach across their differences and gather in ways that create meaning and connection. Then the pandemic came along and the lockdown. And now gathering isn't just hard, at least where I am, it's against the law. From Wondery, I'm Rufus Griscom. And this is a special coronavirus edition of The Next Big Idea. It's part six of a seven part series we're calling Rethinking Big Ideas. We're calling people we spoke with in season one and asking them to help us understand the moment we're in now. There is no one I'd rather speak with now than Priya, In April, she launched a podcast for the New York Times called Together Apart, which, quote, helps us all reimagine our virtual gatherings to honor all the life that keeps on happening to us in isolation. Are you wondering how to connect more effectively through the haze of glitchy video connections and phone calls? So am I. Let's give her a call.
1: The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at tiaa.org/promises pay off.
2: Hello? Is that better? Okay, one second. Input USB, click. Output headphones, click. Okay. How's that? Okay,
0: wonderful. We're all becoming sound engineers. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) We're
2: We're all sound engineers now.
0: (laughs) Right, totally. Priya, welcome back to the Next Big Idea podcast.
2: Thank you for having me. I'm sorry we can't be in the same room this time. As am I. (laughs) Well, I so enjoyed our last conversation.
0: It was one of my favorites, if I'm allowed to say that. (laughs) First of all, how are you? Are you and your family in a good place, literally and, and figuratively right now?
2: Thank you. We are hanging in there. And I think like, you know, most people around the world trying to wrap our heads around this new reality. But we are very fortunately safe and appear to be healthy and, you know, go through the cycles of confusion and dread and moments of light and, you know, everything in between.
0: One of my concerns on your behalf, Priya, would be that on the face of it, given that you're someone whose livelihood is based on helping people gather historically in person, I would normally be concerned about your state of employment right now. (laughs) But as a listener of your wonderful new podcast, Together Apart, I know that you're very busy indeed. Are you surprised by the relevance of your work in this very different time?
2: I'm not. And in part because, you know, I think each of us are going through our own version of asking, what is the core of my work? right? What is the core of what I know how to do? Mm-hmm. What is the core of a problem that I'm trying to solve? And for me, I'm a conflict resolution facilitator, right? At, at some level, facilitators have always been interested in the software of a gathering, not the hardware. Yep. And what I mean by that is the conversation, the dialogue, the meaning making, You know, the psychological experience, and less focused on the hardware, meaning the table, the barbecue, the, you know, the wine, the the tech. And as a facilitator, you know, the core of what I have always done is figure out how to create meaningful connection in a group, despite pretty serious obstacles mm-hmm. for progress. And in my work, the original obstacles I really focused on was racial and religious you know, strife and I- identity differences, whether in India or in the Arab world or on college campuses here in the U.S. And right now, we're in a moment where we are all trying to figure out how do we meaningfully connect for progress despite obstacles. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the same questions and the lens of group dynamics are even more at the forefront, not just for facilitators, but for everybody in the world, right? All of the things that my field has been obsessing about for for decades, all of a sudden have become everybody's problem.
0: Needless to say, as we're talking about this, there are just countless people who are unable to attend funerals, who are unable to be with their loved ones in their final moments. There's a huge amount of loss. Yes. How do you think about that?
2: I mean, we are undergoing individual and collective trauma, and we are experiencing that at different levels at different moments. So first responders and speaking with nurses and doctors in these hospitals, you know it's an unprecedented level of both individual and collective trauma. And then at the level of society, that as well, and particularly... Because of the coronavirus, not being able to actually say goodbye to loved ones in the in the cases where a loved one is hospitalized. I believe we're going to need to, after all of this passes us, whenever that is, be looking at how do we actually grieve? How do we not just grieve individually, but grieve collectively once we can actually, you know, release our breaths and pick up the pieces i believe we're going to have to as a nation and as families as communities actually grieve our many 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 losses individually and collectively and i think in terms of funerals the wisdom that i've heard and and my own instinct is don't postpone the way i think about it is almost like bc and ad <laughs> there's the rituals before the person has passed it's saying goodbye to that person. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then there's the rituals after that person has passed. And those rituals aren't for the person, they're for the community that's left behind. Yeah, yeah. Right, that's left here. And I think one of the things that I've been seeing and reading about and with talking to various people who have had to host funerals for their loved ones, that even if it's not in the form that you had imagined, to still mark the loss with your community in the ways that you can.
0: And there's not only collective mourning that we're missing, but there's collective celebration and you've made the case Priya for a national graduation ceremony, which I think is pretty interesting.
2: I was speaking with the journalist Jody Cantor a few weeks ago and she brought up a tweet where a student tweeted at Barack Obama and said, you know, hey, class of 2020 is really suffering here. Uh, I'm not quoting it verbatim, but would you be our graduation speaker? And it went totally viral. And she told me about this example. And I, I loved it in part because I think this is an unprecedented moment where we actually need gatherings that are both big and small. Mm-hmm. This is happening. I, I saw um, that Oprah is apparently the, the 2020 graduation speaker through, through at least through Facebook, whatever that means. And my question here is, is this going to be a performative spectacle or is this going to be done in a way that is, you know that is actually really meaningful and powerful. And I think part of the answer to that is also how do they think about not only the single collective speaker, which is actually a very powerful, unprecedented idea that I could see a lot of people tuning into, Mm -hmm. but how do we also guide people to have meaningful, small graduation parties being together apart with your own community as you watch this? So the collective shouldn't replace the small. That's right. And the small shouldn't be instead of the collective. We need both. Right, and, and it could be possible to literally
0: have millions of people participating in a collective graduation and then transitioning to much smaller intimate experiences, which is kind of extraordinary and maybe an indication of where things might go. Mm-hmm. A central theme of this Next Big Idea podcast miniseries we're doing is trying to figure out together what we can learn from this moment. And I know that's been an interest of yours as well. In the early episodes of your podcast, Together Apart, you've been helping people translate their events or gatherings into video conference experiences. What have you learned from this that maybe you didn't expect that you think might be applicable to the lives of people listening?
2: I think that people are really willing to take risks. (laughs) to be creative, Uh to think outside of the box. And one of the things that I've been interested in, whether it's for the baby shower episode in which a couple was planning on having a baby shower and then it was interrupted by coronavirus and is now trying to figure out, do you still have it? Like The baby's still coming, right? Is people's fundamental willingness to actually pause and say, well, why are we doing this? And I think- One of the things in many of our gatherings that suffer is we tend to be on autopilot, right? So you um, go to a birthday party and they kind of like, you have candles and a cake and blow it out and everyone claps or, you know, board meetings are, we think of it in a very sort of stodgy way. So the way the show is set up is people call in and we kind of do a, a coaching call around what do they actually do with their canceled, whatever the event is. And then in some cases we follow them all the way along until they do it in episode 2 there's two sisters they're 13 years apart and the younger sister is 17 years old her prom has been canceled her graduation has been canceled and uh she's about to turn 18 and her older sister just feels really badly for her that like even you know even her 18th birthday party is is now canceled and we get into this conversation about how you know for this young woman High school has been really tough. And she kind of just felt that once she'd graduated, it was the light at the end of the tunnel. Mm -hmm. And now it feels like the tunnel is just getting longer and longer and longer. And the conversation that we landed on is, how do you create sparks of light at the middle of the tunnel? And in this case, we came up with the idea in part because the 17-year-old had always loved reading and always saw it as something that she hid away from her friends. She thought it was uncool. (laughs) And they ended up hosting a -a readathon. They borrowed a tradition from a German theater group, which is you choose one book and you invite people over. They used to do this in person and you commit to reading one book aloud together for as long as it takes, right? 12 hours, 14 hours, whatever it is. I love it. And I suggested this on a call and then they ended up going to do it. (laughs) Amazing. And so it's been, I think, one thing that's been really moving for me is that. Often we're on autopilot because we haven't seen other models. Mm -hmm, Right. Sure. And so it's been really beautiful to see how a conversation can spark ideas for that person and then also for listeners. So after, you know, that episode, we get tons of emails about people who have either tried to do that or try to do a version of, you know, of some ridiculous elongating time, right? The length of the gathering is actually can really be played with when people actually have a lot of time and everyone's at home. And so I've been really moved and inspired by people actually not just talking about these ideas, but then going out and and doing them.
0: I'd like to do that one. I think I'd pick a shorter novel, but (laughs) but I'd like to do that. I think it's a it's a phenomenal idea. Let me take a step back and describe why I thought your work was so important even before the coronavirus. You know, I, I would argue and you've heard me say this that our interactions with other humans doesn't make up 50% of our happiness or 75%. It's really like 99%, right? It's the whole thing. We're social animals. So learning how to gather in ways that are effective could not be more important. It's like, as you said earlier, Priya, it's like the operating system or software for the human experience. And I think it's interesting that, as you pointed out, even before the coronavirus, our gatherings have arguably been becoming less effective over time, for many decades, because many of our institutions that used to provide structure for our gatherings have eroded. So, for instance, religious leaders used to provide rituals and ceremony for different stages of our lives, and they still do, but maybe that's for fewer people. All this was true before the coronavirus. So we need to figure out how to construct meaningful rituals together. And you've said, and I I love your phrase, meaning-making, that meaning-making has been democratized. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by this? And broadly speaking, how can we do it better?
2: So just building on that idea, and I I know we talked about this in our last conversation, Traditionally, we turn to institutions to mark the various moments of our life. And that was true religious institutions. So whether it's a baptism or a bar mitzvah or a wedding or a funeral or work institutions, right? That 25-year gold watch, right? The retirement party. And over the last few decades, you know, all the Pew polls show that our trust in institutions, Mm -hmm. whether it's the banks and the government or whether it's religious institutions, is declining. And yet we're still having these moments of life. And so, what's starting to happen, right? The number of people who now ha- ask a friend to be an officiant at their wedding rather than a religious figure. Interesting. Right? The number of people who are now thinking about, Do I do some kind of transition ritual for my child, even if I don't come from a tradition of quinceaneras or bar mitzvah or bat mitzvah, I wanna create some kind of experience, a period party or a a moon party for my daughter. How do I do Mm -hmm. this? or the rise of new modern inventions like and this is a real thing the divorce party oh wow right or you know people are much more fluid in their jobs very few people now actually stay at an institution long enough to have that 25 year gold watch and so actually now informally have so many more farewell parties because people are leaving more often <laughs> right
1: mm-hmm. and sure. so at
2: every level when institutions were responsible for these moments of meaning making there were education forms to help the priests or the rabbis or the CEOs to kind of know how to r- conduct the ceremony. A- and now, because of all of these openings in allowing basically anybody to to step in and and whether it's host your funeral or wake or run a gala, we all are trying to figure it out without the traditional forms and rites of passage that a shaman went through or a priest went through or a nun went through. And so the democratization of meaning-making simply means we are all hosts now, and we are all hosts of moments that are actually pretty important in the life cycle of an individual and of a community. And so it becomes even more important to know how to do this, and we're not taught how.
0: And I get the sense from your comments earlier that, in the friction that our quarantine status puts on our gatherings, that there may be an upside here and that it forces us to rethink why we do them in the first place. We, we kind of have to take them apart and rebuild them. And, and maybe we make them better.
2: You know, I think that there's going to be many, many, many dissertations (laughs) being conducted on Zoom and the dynamics of Zoom in the coming years, in part because these technologies are amplifying the elements of gatherings that often, if you weren't paying attention, went unnoticed before, right? So there's a recent piece, a great piece, I believe it was in Forbes about... man interrupting. It was a male writer who talked about how he began to realize that he was man interrupting in Zoom calls <laughs> in a way that he never actually saw himself, uh, you know, when it's not so slowed down, when if he says something, everything else doesn't just stop and, and the technology and the mute button of the Zoom algorithm chooses his voice over her voice. I think that we're in a moment where the friction is happening in part because everything is becoming pixelated and amplified, right? And so I think one of the things that it's forcing us to ask are questions like, do I really need to host this meeting, right? Is this absolutely essential? Like what are the gatherings that are essential for us to host and what are the gatherings that are essential for us to guest? Mm -hmm. And then can everything else go to the wayside? It's forcing us to ask the fundamental question that every gathering benefits from and is foundational, which is why are we doing this in the first place?
1: Imagine this, higher quality leads, fast closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.
0: Priya Parker's Art of Gathering is a great reminder of the value of community. And if you'd like to stay connected to life-changing ideas like Priya's, we hope you'll join us by becoming members of our community, The Next Big Idea Club. Right now, you can join for free for three months, and you'll get a curated selection of audio, video, and text summaries of the most groundbreaking new nonfiction directly from the authors as chosen by our all-star panel of Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Adam Grant, and Daniel Pink. Just go to nextbigideaclub.com slash podcast. So you lay out in your wonderful book, The Art of Gathering, a number of core tenets regarding what are the kind of ingredients of, of really successful gatherings, which includes having a unique and disputable purpose, the importance of owning your role as a host. Could you share some of these basic principles and, and, and maybe how they apply or don't apply to virtual gatherings?
2: Absolutely. So the first the first principle is, is as you said, is have a specific disputable purpose. And the biggest mistake we make... In our gatherings, virtual and in real life, is we assume the purpose is obvious. Mm-hmm, sure, right? We're having a—it's just our weekly staff meeting. What do you mean? What's the purpose? Is It's to is to have the staff meet? And the most radical thing you can do to make your gatherings memorable and matter and relevant is to actually first ask, but why are we having the staff meeting, right? The staff mm-hmm. meeting is a category. You may even think it's an activity. Well, we come together to, you know, to touch base? Well, for what purpose? Well, actually, because when we don't touch base, there's a lot of miscommunication and the product is worse because we, you know, we didn't catch the error early on and the creative cycle, you know, whatever it is, but getting down to the core element of why are you actually hosting this gathering and for what need? And when you have that purpose, you then don't spend time uh, kind of backing into that purpose through fights about the guest list, right? I thought this was a sales meeting. Why is marketing here? And then the second is don't be a chill host. In trying to be chill and trying to seem not controlling and trying to seem non- not impo- imposing, we under Right, people bring invite people for dinner. We don't introduce them to each other because we feel like it's like too networky. But but then you think about how do you actually do it in a meaningful way to give people a social crutch so that they can actually have a meaningful conversation so that they don't have to do mm-hmm. all the work themselves in our virtual gatherings because at least right now with the interfaces we have to actually have a host who knows their role who helps connect people. You know, I, I recently was part of an 80th birthday party and it was a canceled party. I mean, it was a canceled in person party that was just going to be three families. And we ended up doing it as a virtual Zoom call. It was for my stepfather's 80th birthday. And we were going to have all of his, a joint family, second marriage, all of his children and their children just spend time together for a weekend. We could no longer do that. And so we so we asked, what is fundamental? What is essential? And who can be there? So number one connect with his grandchildren. But his grandchildren are from two to 16, mm. right? How you connect with a two-year-old and a 16-year-old look very different. So we had a 10 a.m., Ginger cooking, baking with you know, gumpy time. Uh Everybody got their own very simple ginger recipe cookies. It was an activity everybody could do together. In the passive time, everyone started talking and joking around. There was a payoff at the end, everyone, you know, all the grandkids got ginger cookies. Then at 4 p.m., we did a virtual cocktail hour and invited 40 or 50 friends and family members from around the world. He's English to join in. And here's the generous host. So my mother played the role of facilitator. So you could just zoom in and say, yay, happy birthday, John, we love you. Yay. And everyone sing and, and blow out a candle. And that's nice, right? Uh-huh. It's warm in and of itself to see the people you love, but to actually make it have a meaningful connection, she practiced generous authority. And what she did was first, as people entered, you know, she said, hey, it's so-and-so from such-and-such. You look great. Wow, hey, here's so-and-so-and-so. So she actually kind of greeted people, not just for them, but for everybody else. Oh my gosh, it's your John's college roommate. Wow, it's the cousin, right? She She's, she's almost like sports sportscasting,
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: right? Who's coming in. And it gives context and meaning to everybody else and it makes them feel welcome. Uh-huh. And then she invited different groups from different parts of his life to in front of everybody else, to agree on a metaphor that described John.
0: Oh, nice! Right, nice. and so even
2: actually seeing people argue is kind of hilarious when they're arguing about is he a yogi or is he a tree? Is he a bowling ball or is he a the, you know? Is he the moon? Oh, that's cute. Um, and but but what's happening there is then also all of his children are seeing people from other parts of his life describe their father in ways that they perhaps hadn't heard. Right? There's a lot happening. So and then and then the final part was. She put us all into breakout groups, which she called the rooms, and everybody had to come up with a poem. And so 60 people got into, I don't know, 20 cocktail rooms, wow. and they came back and read these beautiful, hilarious poems. And sh- so she hosted, but it was actually, it was like well done because she used her power as a host to push forward the purpose and connect the guests to each other, but also protect them from each other. So it just wasn't either chaos or like anemic.
0: You know, I I think I recall that your mother's a cultural anthropologist.
2: (laughs) Yeah.
0: Uh, And I wonder, and I I was curious to ask you whether you coached her on this, because this sounds very much something that you would advise, or to what degree some of her instincts are manifest in your work.
2: I mean, very deeply. I coached her and she coaches me. And for this birthday party, we talked a lot. She was really nervous. She's never used Zoom before. She did three tutorials. We probably spoke 12 times that week to make sure that she. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so, yeah. you know, it's kind of scary for everybody. And you, you just yeah. kind of have to take that deep breath and say, I'm going to forge through and actually help this group connect because I love this human being, right? So it's not connection mm-hmm. for connection's mm-hmm. sake. It's yeah. connection for a purpose.
0: I I have to think that many people listening have had had this experience in recent weeks of helping a parent. For some reason, it takes like 25 minutes to navigate verbally my mother or father to the little button in the corner of the Zoom window that enables you to change the screen, you know, to the Brady Bunch gallery view. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why. You know, just last week, my father, for the first time, saw all of his grandchildren in a grid. And he was like, good God, this is fantastic. This is a revelation. This is, has this been around for long? And one thing that strikes me as interesting is that technology has this tendency to sort of make incremental progress in the background. And so many of us, like 20 years ago, 15 years ago, tried you know the first early Skype which i just looked it up Skype first launched in 2003 17 years ago mm. but that early experience was really a kind of a novelty but it was not gratifying at all and and i think so many of us just saw it as something we were occasionally forced to do in business settings but i think there's been this collective revelation that like wow this is actually kind of powerful and it makes possible kind of new kinds of interaction, which I think is so fascinating.
2: We're looking at a very interesting moment in terms of innovation and adoption of technology. And because the use case that it was originally used for, Zoom was for work meetings, is now being applied to context that the creators never imagined, right? Mm-hmm. And so if you have thousands of people or millions of people all over the world needing to get into a Zoom seder, and the rabbis, you know, a group of rabbis in Israel said, for the first time, you can do this over Zoom, that because of the moment we're in, people are going past the obstacles of adoption, their psychological, physical, technological adoption at a rate that's unprecedented for these types of applications.
0: You know, my, my sister is a college professor, and she has loved using Zoom with her students, but she has noted that it somehow it's more exhausting yeah. than regular interaction. But my takeaway is that Zoom is effective in proportion to video quality to some degree, because we know our brains are wired to read very subtle social cues we can't even perceive, like we're not even aware of what we're processing. Right. My experience has been that it does convey emotional content that I don't get out of a call, albeit imperfectly, but it, it, it's somewhat of an indication of, my gosh, as this quality gets better and better and the glitches and lapses go away, that this is clearly going to be uh, transformative.
2: I mean, I think this is a, a deeply important piece. I think even as Zoom improves and improves and improves, it, the arguments you're going to hear are going to be the same arguments that you know music nerds have between LDs and discs and, you know, digital sound. Yeah, like, sure. it just feels different. Some of our technology... Older technology really works. Yeah, and ju- and just because we have this new doesn't mean that it's better. In fact, it can actually, mm-hmm. like everything, have unintended consequences. You know, I prefer my conversations uh, when it's when it, when it's a conversation and I'm not with somebody. I prefer phone. Then camera on. And even, you know, you and I had this last conversation in person, yeah. and I don't know if you remember or not, but before we started rolling the rolling the audio, I said, um, don't mind me, but I'll be closing my eyes a lot.
0: <laughs> yeah,
2: right. And, and, and part of that is I close my eyes to think, I, I don't want to input all of this other data and manage you emotionally yep, yep, to, yep. to actually focus on the ideas right like part of zoom is exhausting because you're managing more things you're processing more data and then the data is distorted and so i think it's a really important piece to begin thinking about also how do we how do we gather in ways that are off the screen
0: i agree with you if i'm having a one on one call i would definitely prefer it to be just an audio call there's a lot of emotional content in audio and that resonates for me on the other hand i love your observation that every gathering is an opportunity to create the world we wish existed. One of the ways that I wish the world were different is that I wish the geography was more collapsed. Because it it strikes me that one of the kind of tragedies of the modern world is that my my family lives in, we all live in different states. I have all kinds of dear friends who live across the country, right? And, And one revelation for me has been that in a world in which the choices I'm making about who I talk to and interact with are not based on geography at all, I'm all of a sudden doing a lot more communicating with friends who live far away, mm-hmm. which is nice.
2: I mean, until this moment, most of us had a psychological boundary in our head of who we spent time with and spoke to based on geography. And I think that is beginning to change, and I think that's one thing that will that will outlive this moment. On together apart this week, one of the people I spoke with is a Poet and writer named Clint Smith. And I know him a little bit, but I discovered that he defended his dissertation remotely. I love this. And I discovered it because he posted this picture on Instagram of the back of his grandfather's head (laughs) looking on a screen, watching his grandson. So his grandfather's in New Orleans. Clint is in Washington, D.C., where he lives. And he's defending his thesis at Harvard University with four. Proctors that are also in their own houses mm-hmm. And I spoke with Clint and I you know and he said it was so incredibly powerful for me. at first I was really disappointed and, and almost feeling despair that this moment that I'd been working for for six years defending my thesis and you know it was canceled and then you know once I got over that I realized I could actually they're live streaming the actual defense, you know, where I go and defend the ideas and see if I can actually pass this program. And they said I could invite whoever I wanted. And 175 people who have been part of me for my entire life from around the world, but including my grandparents, didn't party with me afterwards. They watched the defense. Yeah,
0: yeah, amazing.
2: Right? The Supreme Court now is live streaming hearings to the public for the first time. We are not just geographically for things like nice things like birthday parties and engagements, you know, hallowed institutions, bastions of power, closed door rooms are now realizing out of necessity that they can open. And my interest also and curiosity is will they continue to be open after this is over?
0: Yes, yes. And and I, I loved your conversation with Dr. Clint Smith. And he said at the end of that conversation, this pushes us to reconsider what access is and what access looks like. And one can't help but think watching the Supreme Court live streaming oral arguments in May, that will be, as you say, I think a very important precedent. And it's hard for me to imagine, you know, saying, oh, you know what? You saw behind the curtain of of how the Supreme Court functions. We're no longer going to let you do that. Right,
2: right. Oops, just kidding.
0: I'd love to end, Priya, with a question that I've been posing to all of our guests. What gives you hope right now?
2: (laughs) Um, I think the things that gives me hope are first, just the stories of doctors and nurses and first responders, even when they have the choice to step out, to continue to go back in, um, it moves me, it humbles me. It just, it's very, very powerful to witness. And I think what also gives me hope is the conversations that people are having about what this crisis is actually showing our society to be, which in many places is very broken. Naomi Klein wrote this book called The Shock Doctrine. And my husband, Anand Girdar das, has, has been referring to a lot of her work lately, which is like, Crises can go in two directions. They can either embed inequities or they can actually be transformative. What gives me hope, though it's a careful hope, (laughs) is that many of the inequities that we are seeing right now will actually create an appetite around the entire country to create better social systems and safety nets for everybody.
0: Well, Priya, thank you for all the great work you're doing helping us all gather more effectively right now virtually. And for taking time out of your podcast hosting and ginger cookie baking and all your other activities <laughs> to be with us uh, now. It's really been lovely. Thank you.
2: Thank you for having me. And um, and for your listeners, if if you have creative ways you're gathering at work or at home, send them to me. Send them. You can send them to me through my website, priaparker.com. Um, and we have a newsletter there. And And also send us your questions. We are always looking for ways to think about together gathering apart and facing this moment.
0: Wonderful. I actually may have one for you, Priya, which I had an outrageous 50th birthday party two years ago, and we were meant to have a reunion of this wonderful community of people. And I'm trying to think through how to do it. So I, I might uh, submit an email to there your, you to your inbox. There you go. There you go.
2: Well, thank you so much for having me.
0: Yeah. Thanks so much, Priya. I appreciate
2: it. Okay. Be well.
0: Before we go, I'd like to remind you that just because we can't exactly gather right now doesn't mean we can't connect. So I would like to invite you to connect with us at the Next Big Idea Club, absolutely free, for the next three months. This is a quarantine special. Join us for lively online discussions, insights, and highlights from the best in new nonfiction, all curated for you by authors Malcolm Gladwell, Susan Cain, Daniel Pink, and Adam Grant. As soon as it's safe, you'll get invites to our live events as well, so we can all gather in person. Won't that be great? To join our community for free, just go to slash podcast. Special thanks today to Priya Parker. You can find her book, The Art of Gathering How We Meet and Why It Matters, wherever books are sold. There's a link to her New York Times podcast, Together Apart, at her website, PriyaParker.com. Priya is spelled P R I Y A. Next week, I'll be speaking with psychologist and author Adam Grant. Adam is one of the four amazing curators of The Next Big Idea Club and a ridiculously but deservedly acclaimed professor at the Wharton School of Business. He was also a high school All-American in diving. You've been listening to The Next Big Idea. If you, I'm your host, Rufus Griscom. Sound design is by Jake Gorski. Caleb Bissinger is our associate producer. Our series producer is Michael Kovnack. Jonathan Miller is our senior producer. Our executive producers are Stephanie Jens, Marshall Louis, and Hernan Lopez for Wondery.